Well, we are back in Genesis, okay? So I'm going to give a brief review of everything that we've hit up to this point. So we're looking at origin stories. The importance of our origin story is the true origin story. And I've tried to argue that the Christian origin story in the Bible, when compared to naturalistic evolution, atheistic evolution, where where there's this no sense of the supernatural, no sense of God, when you take that origin story, you end up in a really bad place when you start to think about what it means to be human. God's story that he gives us, on the other hand, positions us as his image bearers with inherent dignity and value and worth and purpose beyond a chemical reaction and a desire for the propagation of a species or something like that. So I've suggested that we need to know our origin story really well so that when we engage with others who know a different origin story, whether that's the American origin story of atheistic evolution or someone from another culture who believes in some other deity that has spawned life in a particular way, we will be able to give them a better and more compelling story. And this is a true story. So I'm saying story often, and I, I don't mean to tell you that this is a false story or something like that, but that it's the truest story of any story that you'll ever hear, and, and that's in the Bible. And remember, we have two angles on this. We have the cosmic angle in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, where there's the, the 10 words of God that are spoken that bring everything into existence that I think kind of prefigure the 10 words of the Decalogue. What we get is that God's presence and his will are mediated through his word, and it's a life-giving word. Whenever it's spoken, it's final. So when we hear later on a serpent speaking and then God calling the man and searching for him, these are definitive words in one power, God's power, will be more definitive than the serpent's as we consider that in Genesis 3. But then we move beyond the cosmic angle in Genesis 1 to the close-up view in Genesis 2. Now, I've argued that in Genesis 2, we have a picture of the covenantal God entering into a covenantal relationship with his image bearer. So you have Yahweh Elohim, this covenantal name of God, speaking to the man, giving him obligations and responsibilities, and then giving him warnings if he fails to meet those obligations, right? If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Now, as I said, there are other things that Adam could have done that would have broken the covenant. If he set the garden on fire, he, that, that would have been bad. If he murdered the woman, that would have been bad. So covenantal relationships include direct stipulations in the same way that your marriage vow had these specific things we will do and won't do, but then that relationship is bigger than just those vows, all right? There's this sense of covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. We've talked about hesed, the steadfast love that God desires from us, and that's what was desired from Adam, the man. He's given this instruction to watch and to keep the garden. Now, last time I, I highlighted that the word to keep is shamar, this verb that you need to know. Remember, I told you about the guy I knew in college, Shamar Bailey, who went on to be a UFC fighter. That's the guy you want guarding you, okay? Adam's supposed to be that guy in the garden. He's supposed to guard it, okay? That implies that there are things that should not enter into the garden. There are things that 
can corrupt the garden. And that's because this garden is a garden temple where God's presence is intended to dwell. So then reviewing the trees, I suggested that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life are not trees that have fruit with the property of the knowledge of good and evil, as if you eat that fruit and now you have knowledge of good and evil. The man already had knowledge of good and evil. God told him what was good and evil. And, and same with the tree of life. He has life by virtue of being in God's presence and God's spirit dwelling with him. Okay, so these trees... I think are representative of a meeting place where the man and the woman would commune with God in a covenantal meal in relationship with him. And so they were not to eat of that tree apart from his presence, his relational presence with them. That's why it's so insidious when the serpent sneaks into the dining room and says, eat this thing and don't regard your, your covenant God as one who loves you and cares for you, but instead one is one who wants to limit you and wants to keep you from the fullness of life. So this is our review up to this point. Um, any questions on our review of, of the setting here? Um, so obviously when, when Adam and Eve ate of the, the, the uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were breaking the covenant, the, the um, relational covenant with God. Is it almost, almost like that they were almost entering into a relational covenant with the serpent? Well, sharing, eat, sharing a meal in the, what I think is the place of the covenantal meal with an outsider I, I mean, I think we talked about that. Steve and I talked about this. It would be like inviting some woman into your dining room and sharing a meal with her, you know, like your ex-girlfriend from college or something while your wife's out of town. Like, that's bad. That, that might not have been in your covenant stipulation, your wedding vows, but you just know this is a breach of the covenant. Okay, don't, don't ever, we should never do that. Okay, um, but, but yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to feel is it's a violation of the covenant that's on terms of adultery. And that's why I've pointed out multiple times that Adam and Eve are pictured here as a married couple in covenant relationship with one another. I think this whole thing is colored with covenantal language. Uh, and, and that explains, I think, why the tree and the punishment of death is not arbitrary. There's not this tree that's a test of, you know, in, in, uh, in an arbitrary way, you can have everything except that one thing because I'm trying to test you. It's no, this is where we have our most intimate meal together. This is our covenantal relationship on full display. And um, I, th I think that's what's going on there. Okay, then we started chapter three, and I'm going to go much more quickly this time since we didn't get through all of it, and I'd like to get through Cain today as we try to think about what's wrong with us. So who we are, we are God's image, what's wrong with us is pictured in Genesis three. Now remember, I connected for you the end of chapter two, 24, the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. And then the serpent was the, the most cunning of all the animals. And there's that wordplay in Hebrew. We have a room, a room, okay? Or a room, a room. And you start to see this close connection between uh, the description of the man and woman and this description of the serpent. And I think we're meant to see these as a literary connection, bringing these two scenes together. 
like what happens when you're watching a TV show and at the end of a scene in the show, someone says something and there's either a linguistic or thematic or object connection at the very start of the next scene. So someone might say at the end of one scene, say how much they love pineapples or something. And then in the next scene, you see an extra character walking by and on their mug is a pineapple that they're holding. There are just these weird things that people do in putting movies together and scenes that connect things in our minds, get it without even thinking about it. I think that's what's, good, that's what's happening here as well. So the serpent comes, he misquotes God, and notice he drops the covenantal name of God. It's no longer Elohim Yahweh, it's just Elohim. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That's totally not true. And we shouldn't trust the serpent's naivety here. He knows that this isn't true. He's drawing them into a conversation. The woman responds that they may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And again, I think as good readers of the Pentateuch, I don't know if anyone's taken me up on my challenge of reading one book of the Pentateuch every week, but if you did, you would have read Exodus already and you would have known that they can't touch the mountain or they'll be put to death. So I don't think the woman is adding to God's word and corrupting God's word. Sometimes I think I've heard sermons saying, you know, the whole point is Eve's first sin was she added to the word of the Lord. I don't think that's what's going on. I think she's speaking in the strongest of terms this is not for us to, to even touch on our own. This is the meeting place of God. And if this is our garden temple picture that we have, that tree, I think it would be roughly the equivalent of the Holy of Holies. And as we think about these things, there's, that's a dangerous place to be, to, to touch things and to fail to exercise your responsibility. The serpent in verse four then responds, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God or you'll be like the gods. Okay, so we talked about divine counsel. They've been disenfranchised. Well, the serpent's telling these people, you could be higher than you are. Um, you could raise to higher status in life and um, you'll, you'll be one who has the authority to declare what is good and what is evil. So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, desirable for obtaining wisdom. Should we trust her perception? No, no. In fact, she's corrupting God's very word. So whenever we've heard that phrase before, saw that something was good, that's, that's about God seeing that something is good. Well, now she's seen that something is good and already her eyes have been opened and they've been become distorted. Okay, she's put on a lens that distorts the truth and she looks at this and she takes some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the yous are you plurals. They're y'alls all the way through here. The serpent speaking to both of them, the man's with the woman, the man who heard the word directly, who was told to shamar the garden. Well, if a serpent talks to you and tells you the one who made the garden is part of a grand conspiracy to keep you under his thumb, your guardian of the garden is going to, to throw him out of the garden. And so I last week ended by saying, I think that Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, should have tried to kill the snake. They should have tried to kill the serpent. And there, there are one of two outcomes that would have happened. Number one, the serpent would have won. He would have killed them. 
I think he would have tried to kill them uh, because serpents are stealthy and cunning and then they just attack you. you think of um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, the green lady, very, very, you know, manipulative and seductive until she gets shunned, spurned, and then she turns into this like almost dragon-like figure that's going to try, do her best to kill kill this this poor guy, actually, who's been kind of take taken out. But they should have tried to kill the serpent. They should have guarded the garden. And if the serpent had won and they would have died, I, I think that's where we read in Revelation, these letters to the seven churches, to the one who conquers, you know, to the point of death, who, who passes through death as a witness to the word of Christ, to him I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. And, and I think we would have had a resurrection. There would have been a resurrection from the dead if the serpent had prevailed. Uh, but, but then also think of other letters where, uh, where God says to the churches, wait just a little while, you'll experience affliction for 10 days, or, or wait just a little while longer, and then you'll be free. Well, the picture in Genesis 3 is that this temptation is happening perhaps in the morning, and then in the cool of the day, God's presence is walking in the garden. If they would have just held out a little bit longer, they would have had their divine warrior in their midst to defeat the serpent. I, I think they would have prevailed. So there's this breaking of the covenant when there were other options. They didn't have to listen to the serpent. But what that breaking of the covenant did is uh, violate the intimacy that this couple had with God. It put them outside of safety in his relational presence, and it violated their relationship with one another. Because the first thing they do, whereas before they were naked and unashamed, now they're, they're clothing themselves with fig leaves. Okay, they can't, they're, they're ashamed to be in each other's presence. That vulnerability and intimacy is broken. So then the man and his wife, this is 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God. Notice the covenantal name is introduced again. Walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Which is silly to do, to think that you can hide from God among the trees of his garden. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So then the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? The language of the Lord God calling is the same thing when he called the, the light day. His word has an effect that will bring about a reality. So when God calls out to something, there's no avoiding it. Okay, so the, the man responds, not answering the question, but of course, blaming the woman. You know, I knew I was naked. I was afraid. So I hid. The Lord asks him, who told you were, you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And notice that there are a lot of questions that God is asking. He doesn't come immediately with this full force of judgment. I think that these questions are opportunities for the man to confess his failure to maintain covenantal faithfulness and steadfast love. And I wonder what would have happened if he had confessed that. What if he had said, I'm here and I'm hiding because I've broken your word. I, I think that we know of God that he is long-suffering and quick to forgive 
and perhaps that this would have been the, the immediate remedy to the situation, but he didn't do that. He then shifted the blame to the woman that you gave to be with me. So now there's an accusation almost against God. This woman who you gave to me is a helper. Remember, Azar, this helper is related to that verb, bazaar to, to deliver from death. Okay, so there's been a reversal of what should have happened. And that's not God's fault. That's the woman's fault here. So the Lord God then asked the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I don't know that we can trust her words fully either. I think she knew what she was doing when she ate. Um, perhaps she was deceived to think that the serpent knew better than God, but she knew that she was violating the word of the Lord here. Um, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than any of the livestock and more than any wild animal. So in 3.1, he's described as more cunning than any of the animals. Now he's described as more cursed than any of the animals. And that works well in English as it does in Hebrew because there you have um, a room, you know, you're more crafty, a room than any of the animals. Now you are more cursed, a roar. You know, so there are these word plays. And, and right there, we should wonder because of those similarity of the words, will the words to the woman and the man be the same? That you are cursed. You, you were sort of like the serpent. Now you are in the same spot as the serpent. You'll, you'll be cursed as well. That should come to our minds if we're reading this as a, a first reader, I think. So then, you know, the, the Lord curses him. On your belly, you'll move, okay? And I, again, I'm suggesting don't envision that legs popped off this guy and now he is slithering on his belly, but that you're, you, you thought you could raise yourself in stature and status over creation. Well, that's not happening. You're, you're not changing your position here. So it's not a word about locomotion, but about status, I think, on the earth. And then you will eat dust all the days of your life. So again, man was made from the dust. He, he tried to triumph over man. Well, he's going to not literally eat dust as food, but you'll be groveling in the dust, this pre-man material the rest of your life. You, you did nothing to win over God's creation. I think that language of dust is also significant because if you remember in chapter two, the Lord God had not yet planted a garden he made the man out of the dust of the ground, so outside of a garden, you know, just the kind of outside of the garden temple. And so there's this indication that the serpent will be banned from the presence of Yahweh um, is for, for the rest of his life, it seems. All right, and then verse 15, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring between your seed and her seed. Again, don't think literalistically between baby humans and baby serpents. That's not what's going on here. But there's this idea that humanity isn't going to be cursed like the serpent. Instead, the cursed serpent and all those who will identify with him will be at war against the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And implicit in that is the idea that the man and the woman won't die today. The death sentence won't be carried out today because they're going to have seed. They'll have offspring. And what are babies except for the mitigation of death? It's bringing life into the world when we're expecting death to come into the world. Um, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So, so to the serpent, you'll strike 
or, or to, to the serpent, you know, this offspring of the woman will strike your head, some sort of a fatal blow. You'll, he'll bruise your head and you will strike his heel. So not, not great. I, did I give my illustration of a, of a hurt heel? Okay, when, when I, was, I was forced to do martial arts for like 15 years. Anyway, we had to do these things where we would break boards and bricks and these, you know, these sort of things. And so there's a kick that you do where you, you know, you have the, the cinder blocks all stacked up and you bring your heel down and break it. Okay, well, if you don't break it, you, you really hurt your heel. It's painful. And, and that happened to me. And so like for a long time, I was limping because I bruised my heel. It hurt really bad. And so this is a fatal wound to the serpent, but it's also a very painful wound to the person. I think that's being described here. All right, that's the serpent. Questions, comments there? Okay. Then the woman, remember, I'll intensify your labor pains. You'll bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. So there's conflict between the man and the woman, whereas before there was harmony. There will be birth, but conception and labor will both be painful. All right, so the offspring will come, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, so then he says to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed from you. So, so the ground, which Adam came from, is now cursed. And just as he ate from the tree, he will eat from the ground by means of painful labor, similar to the wife in terms of childbirth, all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. So Adam is going to work the ground. It's going to be challenging. But from the ground, just as there will be a mitigation of death in childbirth for the woman, there will be a mitigation of death in life-giving food from the ground that's brought about by the man. It will be painful for both of them, but life is going to be afforded to them despite the declaration that you will surely die. And, and this will happen until he returns to the ground. And so gardening, I think, is both a, an exercise in providing life to people, but it's also a place for reflection on our end, on death. And so the farming gardening, these are all really good things to do. And I think as you do this, whenever that happens in Minnesota again in June or whenever it thaws, as you're gardening, think about the fact that this is a gift from God that's mitigating the death that is righteously put on all of us. Um, but, but the ground that you're gaining life from is where you're going to return. Okay. So there's a lot of irony and in, in literary wordplay going on here, but gardening is a beautiful meditation on life, and it's a, a painful reminder of our death. So he goes on, since you were taken from it, you are dust and you will, you will return to dust. So you, you were made from the dust outside of the garden, outside of the, the garden temple, and now you're going to return to that dust initially as he's exiled from the garden, but then finally as he's buried in the ground once again. All right. Okay. So then we end the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Okay. She, so this is, I think, an act of faith. Yahweh God has now said that we will have life through the woman. So I'm naming her Eve 
because she was the mother of all the living. And I think we should read that as just a statement of uh, faith that God would do what he promised here through the seed or through the offspring of the woman. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Okay, so now there's this gracious provision to cover their nakedness and their shame and their vulnerability. Now, I was reading somewhere a, a Jewish commentator a couple weeks ago, and he was suggesting that the skins that the clothing is made from is like the molted skin of, of the snake. And, and I think that's an interesting imagery. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's interesting to think about. If, if we read it that way, the, the serpent who has made them shamefully aware of their nakedness, it, everything that he does for the rest of his days, will be, he's going to attempt it for evil, but God will, will turn it out to be good in this sense. So even his worst actions will result in the good things that God will bring about through it. I don't think we have to care if it's the skins of a serpent or if God killed an animal and, and clothed them in that way, but it's interesting to think about, and some Jewish writers have thought that in the past. The Lord God said, verse 22, since the man has become like one of us. Okay, I... I, th I think we should not read this as an affirmation that the serpent was correct. Um, remember, us earlier in, in 126 and 27 refers to this divine counsel that has been disenfranchised by God. I, I think it means something different in the mouth of God when he's saying he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil, than what the man and the woman thought it meant. Um, so he, he's become like one of us, quote, unquote, knowing good and evil, as if he can arbitrate between what's right and wrong. That still belongs to me. I think this might be a little bit sarcastic, if, if we can say it that way. I think it's also a little bit like when Josh was preaching about this rich man who wanted eternal life. I think his concept of eternal life was different than what Jesus was talking about with eternal life. And I think that happens all the time in literature. You have someone saying something, and in, in it's a different concept than what it's when God speaks it. Okay, so don't read this as an affirmation that the man and the woman are now more like the, the God whose image they bear. I think actually everything we've seen up to this point displays that they're less like the God whose image they bear. They've gone in the opposite direction, but he then says he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. And again, I think that God is not saying that this tree has the property of life, and if he eats it, he's going to live forever, but that this man, he's already tried to circumvent my plans for him by, you know, trying to become like a deity in some way, and now he's going to try to contrive a way to escape the curse of death, okay? He's going to come up with his own way to try to outskirt the wisdom of God and grab onto immortality when God has declared you're going to die. That immortality in life is sourced not in a particular fruit, but in this place where the presence of God dwells. And that is why in verse 23, the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. That's where you're going to find mitigation of death in the ground that you work, not by this arbitrary and contrived way of, of attaining eternal life. 
Now, some have suggested that this is an act of mercy from God. Otherwise, the man would live forever in this state of brokenness or something like that. I don't think that makes sense, actually. If, if you want to talk about that sometime, we can. We're just running out of time here. But, but the point is that God has a way for death to be mitigated through the seed of the woman and through working the ground. And it's not going to happen through any alternative means that man might contrive. So he drove the man out. So the, this is an exile, right? This is an exile from the presence of God. He drove him out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's this angel-like figure that's set up, and this reminds us of the imagery in the temple where you have cherubim, and then other occasions where there are angelic figures with swords or flaming swords. And this is guarding the way back to the presence of God. Okay, it's guarding the way to the tree of life. Yes, and, and that's a good point. So the, so God originally gave man the commission to work and to guard the garden. Now he's given the commission to work the ground outside of the garden, and I'm giving someone else the commission to guard the garden. Okay, so this, the fullness of what he was intended to do is now divided. Okay, and, and I think throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see angelic figures acting as God's greatest messengers, and it's only in the vision of the new creation, as Paul talks about it, where the roles are now reversed, where man once again is exercising dominion over angels, ruling over angels in that way. Think 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, very briefly, even in this exile from the garden, the exile from the presence of God, exile from the tree of life, God has made a way for us to enjoy a taste of the tree of life. Okay, so very quickly, turn to Proverbs 3.18. Proverbs 3.18. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her, and those who hold on to her are happy. So embracing the wisdom of God over against the wisdom of the serpent is a taste of the tree of life, all right? So pick up on that. Oh, and then Proverbs 11.30, we'll just look at this one more. Um, Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and a wise person captivates people. So this righteousness, so wisdom and righteousness provide life. Um, and then I think similarly in Proverbs 12, 18, there's one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This fits well with the description of the tree in Revelation 22, where the leaves serve as healing for the nations. Okay. And then, um, so, so we get the sense that even though direct access to the tree just like direct access to the presence of God is limited, we have tastings of the tree of life as we live according to the wisdom of God, as we live according to his word, and as we live righteously. And all of these things are perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom and righteousness of God. And so then we start to look to Christ as the way to God, the true words about God in, in the way that leads to life 
with God forevermore. Okay. Finally, in our consideration of Genesis 3, I want to note two ideas. The first is this idea of temptation and Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, as those who failed to battle this temptation rightly. Turn quickly to Luke 3, I think is where we want to go. It's either Luke 3 or Luke 8, but I think it's Luke 3. Yes, Luke 3, 23. We have this genealogy of Jesus Christ. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. And if you skip all the way to the end of this long list of Joseph's heritage and Jesus's heritage, you end with a son of Adam, the son of God. So this transports us back into the garden imagery where Adam is a son of God. And immediately following this, Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. So not tempted in a garden, but tempted in the wilderness. And in every word, corrupting word that comes out of the devil, there is a reply with the life-giving word of God. And, and then there's ministering to Christ at the end of this by the angels. Whereas in the garden, there's this, this word of judgment and guarding of God's presence, keeping man out by angels. And so I think what we're intended to see here is that Jesus is the greatest son of Adam. And one of the reasons I think Luke has this super lengthy family record that starts with, you know, Joseph and you have to read a long time and you might even like nod off a couple times. So you finally get all the way back up to Adam, a son of God, is the fact that there's been this, uh, this vision in scripture of a son of God coming who will do what Adam failed to do, which is to exercise dominion over the serpent and over the seed of the serpent. So we are meant to feel the long, drawn out, painful human history and the deaths and the births that have happened across time and history that eventually lead to Christ, who is the greater son of Adam. So when we talk about our greatest problem, our greatest problem is that we are covenant breakers and we, we don't maintain covenant faithfulness with one another. And our solution, as we'll come to find in the coming weeks and, and prefigured here, is in the perfect Son of God, the second Adam. All right, questions on Genesis 3 before we spend 10 minutes looking at Genesis 4 that elaborates um, and answers the question of what is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and are Adam and Eve actually going to die? Okay, good. All right. Hopefully that means it makes sense and not that it just makes so little sense that you don't even know what to ask. That, I guess that's the other alternative that we have here. For one, the man was intimate with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. Um, and she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help, or I've made a man with the Lord's help. I, that's, that's more literally what's here. I, I've, I've made a man with the help of Yahweh, okay? She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, I think this is where we get the idea that Cain and Abel are twins. I don't know if they are or not. doesn't really matter but you have two offspring of the woman. You have Cain and you have Abel. 
And we are intended to think that Cain, this one who was made with the help of the Lord, will be the kind of offspring that strikes the head of the serpent. And in fact, as we read the rest of the Bible, because we're going to be disappointed in finding out that Cain is actually the seed of the serpent in the end here, but we're looking for the seed of the woman the rest of the time that we read the Bible, okay? So Abel, uh, again, maybe you guys don't care about this. I think it's fascinating. Abel's name is Hevel. Hevel is the word in Ecclesiastes where it's often translated vanity of vanities. I think there's a connection there, or it could mean uh, breath or vapor or something like that. And so we start to, start to get the idea, I think, that Abel's life is a vapor. It's, it's going to go away quickly. But Abel was a shepherd of the flocks. So Abel's not quite like Adam, but Cain worked the ground. He's a gardener. So Cain is a second Adam, all right? I, I really think so. And as we go on, everything about Cain initially is, is just like Adam, okay? Um, if you want to think about that more, last night I couldn't sleep for some reason. And so I was thinking about this and made a little chart of Cain and Adam's symbol, you know, similarities. So if you're interested in that, know that you're supposed to hear Cain is a worker of the ground, this thing that's going to mitigate death. He's like Adam who was made to be a worker of the ground. And we're supposed to wonder, is Cain going to now take on the shamar, the guardian role that, that was taken away from Adam? Um, so in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Our hopes are raised even higher. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That is to say, the Lord gazed upon Abel and his offering, uh, but he did not gaze upon or have regard for Cain in his offering. Cain was furious and he was despondent. His head hung. Why is God not gazing on my offering? Now, I think that we should understand there that there's not something wrong about offering vegetables over against the lamb, but that there's something wrong with the one who is doing the offering, okay? So it's not, we shouldn't try to parse out, well, if he had gotten, you know, put bigger carrots up there, would it have been accepted? That's not the right way to think. The right way to think is, what's going on with Cain? There's something wrong with him, okay? There's something wrong with our second Adam. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you do what is righteous, won't you taste of the tree of life? Okay? Um, uh, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So the idea is you must dominate, you must crush this sin that's crouching at the door. So in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, where it says that the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, the word there is the, the seed of the woman will be on the lookout for the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent will be on the lookout for the, the seed of the woman. And the idea here is that sin is on the lookout for a way to strike at the heel of, of the man. And the man needs to crush sin. He needs to dominate over it. He must rule over it. So Cain knows what he's supposed to do. Surely Cain knows of this prophecy that the offspring of the woman will be the one who has been set up by God to crush the offspring of the serpent or to crush the serpent. And instead of ruling over it, Cain said to his brother 
Abel. He spoke with his brother Abel and, and convinced him to come out to the field, into this remote place. And in this premeditated murder, Cain attacks his brother and kills him. He slays his brother. And so whereas he should have exercised this dominion, a dominion that's entrusted to man to to exercise dominion over sin in the earth, he exercises dominion over his brother. And so what's being emphasized here is that death comes from sin. So, so the first thing that happens after exile from the garden is death, a murder scene, okay? And this reminds us that we are not inclined to live in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness with our fellow man as we were intended to do. And so when we are notified by our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have offended them or that we have acted in sin against them, our first response should not be to go on the defensive, but to say that we're much more like Cain than we'd like to imagine. We'd like to imagine that if we were put in the in Adam's situation, we would have responded as Adam should have, but we found that there's another human who is a worker of the ground and who, who acts just like Adam, except worse. And so we are inclined to break covenant fellowship and in fact suck the life out of every relationship that we enter into. On our own terms, that's what we do. We are killers. We are murderers. And we are tempted to be of um, the, the father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. We are inclined to be acting as the seed of the serpent rather than as the seed of the woman. My point in emphasizing this is we are trying to connect this to our theological anthropology as we think about our relationship in, with respect to ethnicity and gender and marriage and, and all the rest. When, when someone points out to us that we have a proclivity to act in, in covenant violation, whether that's in terms of uh, racist judgments such that we elevate ourselves and we uh, rule over others in the way we think about them or the way we relate to them, or whether it's a way in our marriage that marriages that we tend to be in conflict with one another when instead we should be promoting peace and, and giving life-giving words, a response to that ought to be a quick word of repentance to say, yes, that's me. And that's been humans from the beginning. And I'm no better or no different than anyone else. Okay. And so we, we should be quick to repent as we break covenant relationship with one another. And as we shall see, um, humans take this covenant breaking and infuse everything that they touch with it. Okay. They infuse all of life with this covenant breaking. And so we should not be surprised to find that, that our systems in our world actually include things that don't promote life and health and peace, but instead promote death, okay? And this is why it would be right for us to respond to calls for police departments to evaluate their policies and to work towards more life-giving po policies with support. That's good, and, and as we've talked about before, calls to get rid of authority is wrong, okay? So we don't get rid of something. We don't get rid of relationships or authority or dominion simply because they've been abused. But we do recognize that our inclination as humans is to infuse everything that we do with a touch of death, okay? So in that way, we're like the, the touch, the, everything that you touch turns to gold. That's neat, but it actually is going to kill you eventually, 
All right, that's, that's who we are as humans. That's who we are as church people. And so that's why we have to regularly, as a church, remember our church covenant and our relationship to one another. We regularly need to partake of the Lord's Supper, as we will do today, as we reflect on the reality that we need the truer and better Adam, who, when, when the serpent said, take and eat, and, and the fruit led to death, we have a truer and better Adam who says, take and eat and enjoy life forevermore. We need to remember that we're covenant breakers, and we need to identify with are the second Adam and not the first Adam. All right. The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Again, the question and opportunity for repentance. And he simply replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? The same word for Adam's task to guard the garden. So again, this Adam is no better than the first one. In fact, he's worse. And, and we trail in that long line. Okay, we're going to have to pause here, but I, I hope that as we soak in this story, we start to get the right impulses as we see these realities play out in our world and in our church. Uh, these are the people that we are. We try to, I think, think of ourselves as, you know, angelic beings who know what is good and perceive things truly and always do what is right or something like that. But actually, we're a lot more like Cain. And so we need to then follow this biblical narrative to find out what the answer is to our Cain-like state. Okay? And, and that will be found in the seed of the woman.